BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And buenos dias, como esta usted? I think I've exhausted my Spanish vocabulary left over from, uh, <laughs> from studying it in second grade with Cinco de Mayo. Another amazing day here. We've got a lot uh, on the program today. I want to talk about the death of democracy and how much is a human life worth what Andrew Cuomo was talking about on his daily fireside chat thing. It's a huge issue that really needs to be discussed. And I'll tell you my opinion on all that. I have a very strong opinion on that. I'll, I'll share all that. And what do you do? And a whole bunch of other news as well. But I want to start out with this, you know, how much is a life worth? Andrew Cuomo came out and said this on television. And Louise and I have had this conversation a couple of times. In fact, she just brought it up yesterday again of how are they you know, making these decisions in the White House and in governor's offices and whatnot? Because we actually do make these decisions all the time. How much is a life worth? You know, uh, Ralph Nader busted uh, GM and Ford over this back in the 70s because they concluded that if somebody died because of the side saddle gas tanks and the Chevy trucks or, or because of the Pinto and the Ford, you know, the gas tank in the back, that somebody dies, well, you know, it's going to cost us about a quarter million dollars or half a million dollars. I forget what the number was. I think it was a quarter million dollars or $200,000 was their settlement. And now keep in mind, that would be $2 million in today's dollars. But they were like, you know, that's what, that's what it's going to cost us. And so we'll save more than that on the five cent bolt kind of thing. The EPA makes these decisions. How many people will die or not die if we decrease the level of fill in the blank of pollutant, you know, atrazine or cyanide or, you know, whatever it may be. And we have acceptable levels for poisons in our environment that we know kill people. We know that 10,000 people a year die just from air pollution from car exhaust. And in California, you know, they said we want to reduce that number and we're willing to raise the economic cost to do that. You know, with catalytic converters first 20 years ago and now with uh, higher fuel standards. Whereas the rest of the, uh, you know, the Republican part of the country says, no, no, and the Trump administration, no, no, we don't care about those people dying. We want the car manufacturers and the fossil fuel manufacturers to make more money, or refiners. So Cuomo was like, how much is a life worth? And I think that the Republicans have done the following math. You take $6 trillion, which is what the, you know, the estimated cost so far, and you could argue that it's even $16 trillion because the Fed has pumped 
or, or $10 trillion, excuse me, because the Fed has pumped $6 trillion into the big corporations and, and uh, Congress pumped about $2 trillion or about $3 trillion into big corporations out of that $4 trillion that's been appropriated. So that's $10 trillion. You take $10 trillion and, and you know, the new Trump projections are that roughly 150,000 people will die. I think it was 134,000. So if you divide, you know, 150,000 into 10 trillion, I can't do that math that fast in my head, but basically, you know, you're going to come up with each life being worth what, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars? And the Republicans are looking at this going, you know, the majority of the people who are dying from this, like, you know, more than half of the people who are dying from this are either elderly, poor, or black. And Republicans don't think that any of those lives are worth even, you know, a hundred grand. I mean, look at the arguments they've made to scale back Medicare and Medicaid, or even forbid people from getting Medicaid in the red states. All those lives aren't worth that much. I think Cuomo nailed it. And then on top of that, you've got, and, and I'm wondering if you think so too, and, and do you think that this is, you know, does this make sense, that this is the Republican math? And for that matter, should it be our math? I mean, is it acceptable? You know, apparently it is in Sweden. Is it acceptable to have, let's say that we completely open the country back up like Trump wants to do, so that he can have a roaring economy to get reelected in November, is it acceptable to have a million deaths? And if you have a million deaths, and it costs, you know, and the damage, you know, of preceding that was $6 trillion to the economy. That's still, you know, whatever that works out to be, it's still a lot of money per family, per person. So, you know, I think, you know, Cuomo has opened the door to this, this conversation. I think it's an important conversation. And maybe you can do the math for me faster than I was able to do it. Meanwhile, Donald Trump says he will not sign any legislation to stimulate our economy if it doesn't include a massive cut in Social Security. I mean, a, a cut so large that it may well force the secure, Social Security system into the same crisis that the post office is facing right now. This is the, re, this is the way Republicans tear down government. This is the way America-hating Republicans tear down government and replace it with big corporations. They want to tear down the post office. They've been tearing down the post office since 2005 or 2006, I guess it is. Uh, tearing down the post office, they want to replace it with FedEx. And they want to tear down Social Security and replace it with Citibank and Wells Fargo and Bank of America. I mean, it's just that simple. He's not going to sign any more stimulus packages unless there's a huge cut in the Social Security uh, tax, which funds Social Security. He calls it a payroll tax cut, but it's really a full-blown attack on Social Security itself. You know, the Republican strategy is to replace government. You know, Steve Bannon said, our goal is to dismantle the administrative state. What does that mean? Tear, destroy American government. These guys hate America. They hate our government. They hate our values. The, the pluralistic, uh, you know, all men are created equal, all people are created equal, the values of the founders of this country. These Republicans hate these values. And they are doing everything they can to destroy this country. They, they cut the regulatory agencies, they cut, you know, the funding to like the EPA so that there's more poison in our environment. One of Trump's first pieces of legislation was to let the big coal mining companies and, and oil refining companies pour, pour more fossil fuel waste into our rivers, knowing that that's going to be in the drinking water of millions and millions of children downstream who are going to be neurologically and developmentally damaged. They don't give a rat's ass. They hate America. They just want to extract all the cash they can out of us. 
So, you know, workplaces and residential areas near factories and, and toxic waste sites, sites, they're sacrifice zones. And then they say, just let the big corporations take it over. You know, this is the biggest attack on American democracy in my lifetime. And they are succeeding. They have succeeded in destroying the EPA's ability to regulate this country. They have succeeded in destroying the Interior Department's ability to protect our public lands. They have succeeded in kneecapping Social Security and Medicare to the point that it takes two years to get a Social Security disability claim processed. And the funds are, are all low on money. They have succeeded in kneecapping the IRS to the point that they're no longer auditing super rich people like Donald Trump. They have succeeded. Will they finally destroy American democracy altogether? What do you think? Pick up your calls after the break. I've also got a pile of news for you here, too. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I think the clue, you know, a big clue to all this is what can be found in some of these protests. I'll share that with you after the break. So for our Tom Hartman Insider video that's available over at TomHartman.com, it's pretty mind-boggling, actually. Candidate Trump, back in 2016, said, I'm not going to cut Social Security like every other Republican, and I'm not going to cut Medicare or Medicaid. Every other Republican is going to cut, but I won't. That's what he said. Well, what did his budget actually propose? His budget actually proposed, this is last year's budget. Congress didn't pass it, thank God, but this is what his budget proposed. one9 trillion dollars in cuts to Medicare and Medicaid and 26 billion dollars in cuts to Social Security. And now he is block granting Medicaid to the states, which is already cutting back on Medicaid programs in the red states. You can check it all out over at TomHartman.com. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. I think when we're talking about the U.S. government, we need to always remember that we're dealing with a government that isn't really working for the people anymore. I mean, it used to at least work for basic needs for the people. It was still always, you know, structured for the wealthy, but it wasn't a just Ayn Rand cult, death cult that we currently have. But somewhere along the lines, America seems to have just diverged from just basic common sense of the planet, and we seem to have just taken capitalism to a almost crazy and insane form of it with this deregulation that's been going on for the last 40, 50, 60 years now. And I don't think Donald Trump gets a lot of the blame for the policies that he's largely continued. I mean, he he has done nothing, quote unquote, populist since getting in. In fact, all I've seen him do is is cut our health care and um, cut uh, EPA regulations. And um, I, I, I just feel like he just doesn't get so what's enough your point, blame Jared? for all this. Oh, that I, Americans aren't outraged. Well, that's because our media doesn't talk about it in these terms. 
it's all it, they've normalized the whole thing. Oh, yeah, that's what Republicans do. Yeah. You know, ever since Reagan, ever since 1981, this idea that government is the cause of our problems, not the vehicle to solve our problems, has been the principal mantra of the Republican Party. And of course, if government is the cause of the problems, then you have to destroy government. These guys have been an anti-America Jeremiah ever since 1981, and they're still on it. This is the logical endpoint. This isn't some aberration. And it's a self-feeding feedback loop, because if you cut government and make it not work, people are going to start hating government. Why? Because That's it's my not point. working. That's my point. And, Reagan and laid it, this out. He laid out this, this uh, strategy and called it Starve the Beast. You starve government of resources, then government starts functioning poorly. Then you point out government is functioning poorly and offer a corporate alternative. This is what they've been doing since 1981. I just wish that there was some kind of way we could stop it. But honestly, I, yeah. I don't I don't see I, this. Ever the ending. only way we can stop this, Jared, is to overwhelmingly elect Democrats in November, take back the Senate and give it a filibuster proof majority, 60 Democrats. And I think that's possible. Maintain control of the House and increase the margin of uh, Democratic representation. I think that's possible. And replace Donald Trump with Joe Biden. It's just that simple. I mean, I, I or whoever the Democratic nominee is, if it gets tossed you know, to the convention this summer. But I'm betting it's going to be Biden. Jared, thank you for the call. I, I, this is this is becoming kind of political science 101. In my so anyway, sure that would be. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club, and today we're reading from Robert Draper's book, When the Tea Party Came to Town. And it was actually the original title of this book when it first came out was called Do Not Ask What Good We Do. And this is the only book that tells the story of how the Republicans got together the night that Barack Obama was being inaugurated and decided that for the next four or eight years, they were going to do everything they could to destroy our first black president's presidency. And so I'm reading from the prologue. And he's talking about how Frank Luntz had organized that dinner that I was just mentioning. And he was very happy about that. The dinner tables were set in a square. This was at the Caucus Room restaurant in a private dining room. It was a little restaurant down at the corner of 9th and D Street. The dinner tables were set in a square at Luntz's request so that everyone could see each other and talk freely. He asked that Gingrich speak first. Gingrich was happy to oblige. And, you know, it goes on through this. Pete Huckstra said, so we're in the depths. And then we get right into it. This was their plan. You know, what their party had done from 94 to 2000, what the Democrats had done from 2006 and 2008, the Republicans would once do again. They would take back the House in November 2010, then they would use the House as the Republican spear point to mortally wound President Obama in 2011. They would do this and take, retake the House and the Senate in 2012. Uh, they would do all this, but only if the American voter blessed them to do so. It made no sense they all agreed to attack Obama personally. He was too popular. Got to be about ideas, said Eric Cantor. Democrats now controlled everything and were already with a monstrously priced economic stimulus package showing their true colors. Given time, they'd screw things up as the GOP had. But, said Paul Ryan, everyone's got to stick together. Ryan, a 38-year-old Wisconsin congressman and numbers fetishist, whose shiny earnestness recalled an Ozzy and Harriet America. On that evening, while the ruling party celebrated in tuxedos and the minority party retrenched over steaks and red wine, 
U.S. unemployment rate had climbed to 7.6%, the highest such indicator of national misery in 18 years. Things could get much worse. Joblessness in America would exceed 8% the following month. By May 2009, the number would climb to 9.4%, and by October, to 10.2%. And it goes on. It's a great book. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. One of the uh, big problems that we have right now in the United States is that with the 30 million people being thrown out of work and the United States being literally the only country in the developed world that ties your access to health care to your employment, we have 30 million people. We, we don't know how many of them are, are insured or were did have health insurance, but we got a lot of people without health insurance right now. And we got to do something about this. On the line with us is Alex Lawson, the executive director of socialsecurityworks.org and strengthensocialsecurity.org. His uh, Twitter handle is ALAW202, A-L-A-W202. Alex, welcome back. Tell us about what the problem is and what the possible solutions are. We have 19 Democrats apparently working on this thing. Definitely. Thanks, Tom, for having me on, as always. So you laid it out. Exactly right. Because we are the only country amongst our peers who have created this system that does not provide health care to everyone in the country and to those who it does, it oftentimes underinsured, but it definitely makes a lot of money for some private health insurance CEOs and definitely for Wall Street. What we're seeing now with the COVID crisis, public health emergency, is just how bad the system is for public health. We're in the midst of basically unemployment levels that haven't been seen since the Great Depression. This is the uh, Great Again Depression coming. And then the numbers that you're seeing with COVID are the 1918 flu at the same time. And in the middle of this, because we tie health insurance to employment, 30 million people not only don't have wages coming in, but don't have the ability to get health care. It's just mind boggling that we let this happen, but we did. So now the question is, what do we do now? And there's a few things to consider. One is that this is an emergency, so we need to do something right now. But two is what Francis Perkins said in the creation of the New Deal, that it wasn't good enough to just deal with the emergency at hand. We needed to build pathways and systems to create a system that prevented the emergency from happening again in the future. So I think we should see a lot of the effort as glide paths towards a system of guaranteed health care for everyone in this country, Medicare for all. So first off, you have two bills in the House that Pramila Jayapal has sponsored. One of them is with Bernie Sanders in the Senate. What's going to happen is that none of these bills are going to get passed. A stimulus package is going to get passed. That's the only thing that will actually become law. And so all of the bills that people are proposing right now, what they're actually doing is proposing them to be part of the package. And that also means that you can take pieces of them, you can combine two bills and put that as part of the package. And I think that that's what the idea behind these two are. What Bernie Sanders has said is quite simple. 
Medicare just covers the costs for people. If you have insurance, Medicare is going to cover all of your co-pays, all of your out-of-pockets. You don't pay anything. And that way, no one doesn't access care because of cost during the crisis. So if you have insurance, no more co-pays. And for anyone who doesn't have insurance, all of their costs are covered by Medicare. Forgive me for sounding like a Republican, but how is that paid for? You know, in the time of crisis, we see how the government actually works. So like when we buy tanks, weapons of killing people, you don't pay for it because the government pay fors are not real. Pay fors are ways that you don't let good things happen. These emergency stimulus packages do not have revenue options on them, nor do they need them. It's sort of the like all the people who shouted in our faces, but how are you going to pay for it? Uh, for so many months when we talked about how Medicare for All actually saves money, everyone recognizes that in the middle of a pandemic, getting people health care is not a matter of pay for it or not. It's a matter of we will pay for it if we don't have health care for people. That will just be a pandemic that rages, continues to rage out of control and grows. Yep. That's a couple pieces that we could pull into this package, just having Medicare pay the bills. The other part is actually getting people who've become unemployed onto Medicare. So they're actually, they would be on Medicare for the length of their unemployment. And at the same time, that also increases the federal money going to Medicaid, the match, which in D.C. parlance is called the FMAP. And it increases that a lot, trying to pull some of these states that have still not expanded Medicaid into an expansion of Medicaid in order to get more money from the federal government. All of those ideas are actually complementary. You can do them at the same time, and they work sort of sequentially as well. And then I do want to spend a second on one that is more controversial, because it is, in many respects, a bailout to the insurance companies, which is the COBRA subsidy. COBRA, just to make sure everyone understands it, COBRA is not its own thing. All COBRA does is allow people to buy the insurance that they were previously covered with, but both the employer and the employee side, plus a 2% fee. That's all that COBRA is. It's just the, the insurance that you had and the ability to continue that forward. A lot of people think of it as so expensive because they don't know how much their employer puts into the system. There's a proposal that has the most support is to actually just have the government subsidize people's COBRA so that they can keep the insurance that they have. We don't oppose because there's many people in this country, once you have your insurance, you know you know your doctors are in network. This is not the time to be throwing a curveball to people, uh, millions of workers who are finding themselves without jobs. That's why a lot of labor supports this COBRA subsidy bill. But yeah. we say Alec, it, ha- it can't just be that. It has to be that plus something to cover all the millions of people who didn't have that employee-sponsored coverage in the first place. Are you proposing that Medicare, I mean, Medicare right now pays only 80% of expenses. Are you proposing that for people who are unemployed to pay 100% of expenses? And if so, how do we retrofit that to the existing Medicare program for everybody? I think that's a great question. The answer is Medicare would pay all of a person's bill so that no one, if they're uninsured right now, so that no one has any reason for costs 
to keep them from seeing a doctor. And, you know, what my personal, I take what Frances Perkins said, she's the creator of the New Deal, the brains behind it, was that once people see that, it's going to dawn on them, why should cost keep people from the doctor for anything? Not just for this public health emergency, but for all things. There should be no out-of-pocket cost. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Alex Lawson, socialsecurityworks.org. And also, we act radio in uh, Washington, D.C. Alex, thanks so much for being with us again. It's always great talking with you. Thanks, Tom. Quick math the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. Check it out. Tom Harvin here with you. Richard Cadlec, K-A-D-L-E-C. He was uh, confirmed back in 2017 as Trump's top official for public health preparedness. He used to work for a company that paid him as a consultant. It was called Emergent Biosolutions. And so what does this guy do when he gets a a gig in the Trump administration where he has control over a budget? He orders up $2.8 billion worth of smallpox vaccine from this company that he used to work for, Emergent Biosolutions. And the federal government gives them $2.8 billion, which, by the way, is twice the price that they used to pay for smallpox vaccines. And are we expecting a smallpox epidemic? Really? Is that what's going on? Oh, no. This is just garden variety Trump administration corruption. 
Republicans view government as something to steal money from. Democrats view government as something that protects working people. It's really just that simple. You can just boil it down to that. The Pope has a guy who works for him. He's a cardinal. His name is Conrad Krajewski. Works in the Vatican. And uh, his title is Papal Almoner which is a fancy way of saying distributor of alms, of donations, on behalf of the Pope, personally. This is really one of those really wonderful stories. There was a, a group, I mean, it's got a sad subtext, but there was a group of transgender sex workers in a beach town near Rome who couldn't get work, and because they were sex workers, didn't qualify for assistance from the state. And I don't know if that's because being a sex worker is illegal or because... They were contract, you know, I, I don't know the details of that, but they, it wasn't available to them. So they went to a local Catholic priest for help to buy food. Food. And his resources, his parish resources were already wiped out with regular members of the parish. So he called up the Pope. And the Pope wired money to the parish for them via Cardinal Conrad Krzyzewski. And this is so sweet. The Pope's Almoner, his distributor of alms, said everything is closed. They don't have any resources. They went to the pastor. They could not have gone to a politician or a parliamentarian. The pastor came to us. They're really in difficulty because sometimes their passports were taken away by the mafia pimps who control them. We follow the gospel. It's enough to make you want to become a Catholic. It's incredible. I got uh, Phil Proctor's newsletter, Planet Proctor. Um, I'm guessing you can Google that. It's, it's free. You know, it's a subscription, but it's free. Phil Proctor of the Firesign Theater. And he opens with, with just this, my car is getting three weeks to the gallon, but it's like being 16 again. Gas is cheap and I'm grounded. Parents in Beverly Hills fired their nannies and learned their children's names. And my rich neighbors are now playing miniature golf. And one of them got a pre-declined credit card in the mail. Oh, and a picture is only worth 200 words now. What's more, the McDonald's is selling the quarter-ouncer. I saw a Mormon with only one wife, and when Bill and Hillary travel together, they have to share a room. The Treasure Island Casino in Las Vegas is now managed by Somali pirates. A truckload of Americans was caught sneaking into Mexico, and Angelina Jolie had to adopt a child from America. That's kind of, kind of a, I guess that's what comedy is. Oh, jeez. I'm going to stop right there. But anyhow, Phil, Phil's, uh, you know, a little light levity, right? That that said, some of the other stuff that's in the news is pretty, pretty concerning. 34 days inside, this, Phil Ruckert wrote this for the Washington Post, 34 days of pandemic inside Trump's desperate attempts to reopen America. And he talks about how this guy, this economist, uh, Kevin Hassett, you know, the, in the White House, in the Trump White House, they didn't like this University of Washington model that predicted that more than a million Americans might die. And so they created their own. But they're not public health experts, and they have no idea how diseases transmit. So these economists created one based on, you know, basically opening the country back up. Right. This is uh, a former senior administration official briefed on the data called it a catastrophic miss. Phil Ruckert writes, the president's course would not be changed, however. Trump and Kushner began to declare a great victory against the virus while urging America to start reopening schools and businesses. And it goes on for another 10 pages about how, you know, what a just an absolute screaming, flaming, disastrous mistake this was. Another piece over at Daily Kos by Hunter, the headline, Trump's team didn't believe pandemic experts, and so they gambled on their own 
predictions. It's basically the same story. Even at the end of March, Hunter writes, Trump and allies were still dismissing predicted death counts and claiming a rapid reopening was likely. This White House advisor, this is Kevin Hassett, with no background in infectious diseases, made his own analysis, which predicted deaths would, quote, peak in mid-April and then drop off substantially with far fewer fatalities than initially foreseen. Unfortunately, we have many more fatalities. Robert Reich today, writing over at uh, The Guardian, Donald Trump's four-step plan to open the economy is brutal. Step one, remove income support, in other words, unemployment, so people have no choice but to return to work. Step two, hide the facts. Only six and a half million people have been tested out of 200 million adults in the United States. And you really, you know, healthcare workers, for example, need to be tested every day. Florida has stopped releasing medical uh, information about who's dying. The White House has blocked Fauci from testifying. Then step three, pretend it's about freedom. Trump called on citizens to liberate Michigan. It's just nuts. Attorney General Bill Barr says uh, it's about freedom. He's going to find out if there are any states that, quote, could be violating the constitutional rights and civil liberties of individual citizens. Step four, shield business against lawsuits for spreading the infection by forcing people to go back to work or opening their businesses in unsafe ways. And then finally, the biggest obstacle to reopening the economy, Robert Reich writes, is the pandemic itself. And they're trying to ignore it. Corky in Rochester, New York. Hey, Corky, what's on your mind today? Well, I, I'd like to know why they're misrepresenting where the first cases of the coronavirus were. Trump keeps saying in Florida, it wasn't. It was up in the, the northeast, the west, Washington state. That's where they discovered the first cases of coronas. Right, the first we knew of. Now it looks like actually some of the first deaths from coronavirus, before we even knew about that case in Washington State, happened in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, as I recall. Santa Clara or Santa Clarita. Yeah, why are they misrepresenting that? I don't know. I haven't heard, you know, of course, I don't listen to Trump very much, but did he actually say that this all started in Florida? No, it was the government itself that said that. Oh, really? Yeah, but... That falls right in line with my prehistoric virus theory, that it came out of the ice melt. Yeah, virus. except that they've got the genome of this thing, Corky, and you can see, you know, when a virus infects an animal for a long time, the virus and the animal exchange little bits of DNA, the so-called junk DNA that's, you know, something like 80 or 90 percent of the entire human genome is mostly ancient viral and bacterial infections that we have had. We've acquired, you know, immunity or the ability to coexist and it gets passed along in our genes. The viruses do the same thing. And this virus clearly indicates that it came from a bat. Now, I suppose the debate right now that Trump is trying to have is, was that bat in a wet market or was that bat in a laboratory that was examining viruses the bats were carrying around? And, you know, I think that it frankly doesn't matter and I don't care. But Trump is trying to hang his reelection on that by, uh, you know, trashing that. But, but it was not a manufactured virus and it was not an ancient virus that was thawed out of the ice. But those are coming, Corky. I mean, you know, those are coming. You know, Chris Cuomo... I don't know him personally. I know he is. He's, you know, the, you're talking the CNN anchor who's the brother of the governor yeah, of New York. Yeah, he's been following his progression through the virus. But he uh, just had a blood panel done. You know, that, you know what a blood panel is, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. 
and it was all over the place. Nothing was recognizable in it, which tells me if you've never seen it before, then it didn't come from what we have on this planet. So oh, no, it, it just means that humans have not interacted with this. There are thousands of viruses and hundreds of coronaviruses that have been identified in mostly in bats because bats have a very, very tolerant immune system because they're the only animal that can fly. Apparently that that, you know, is why, you know, they carry these viruses and it's just very rare that those viruses jump into the human population. They have to have a, a typically a small mutation to make them pathogenic with regard to us. And so that's that's what's going on, Corky. And, and the more we burrow into un areas where humans haven't been before and expose ourselves, this is exactly what happened with Ebola and with Lassa virus. I mean, there's just a bunch of these things where because our population is growing so much, it's because we're so indiscriminately destroying the biosphere, the, the environment, you know, we are encountering old viruses and living, you know, still around now viruses that we just have no immunity to. Hey, we have a new video over at TomHartman.com. On this one, I'm digging into, or actually kind of taking issue with, a new article that's over on um, uh, thenation.com. Uh, titled, Could Coronavirus End Globalization? And they've got a bunch of analysts who are weighing in on this sort of thing. And my take is that this is going to be even bigger than that. This depression that we are sliding into is being softened right now by the Federal Reserve throwing $6 trillion at America's largest corporations. One-third of all economic activity for a year in the United States. Twice the annual federal budget. The Fed has just parked six trillion dollars with a couple of hundred big companies and it's just masking what's coming it's going to get bad and it could become fascist and so check it out it's over at tomhartman.com tom hartman here with you i wanted to share another piece of this with you that what we are seeing right now is the climax of a 40-year campaign to destroy america by the Reaganistas and the billionaires who supported Reagan, who well, they were they were multimillionaires back then, but you know they're billionaires now <laughs> because of Reagan's policies for 40 years. The billionaires who supported Ronald Reagan, the billionaires who supported George W. Bush, and the billionaires who now support Donald Trump. They don't want American democracy. They don't want you to vote. They don't want you to be protected by federal agencies. They want to make sure that they are not inspected by the IRS. McConnell is now saying that no legislation is going to pass unless it includes a provision that says that you can't prosecute or sue, excuse me, you cannot sue a billionaire or a big corporation if they make workplace decisions that put your life at risk. And mark my words, this will not be limited to the coronavirus. They're going to use the coronavirus as an excuse to say if you work in a meat packing plant and they speed up the line and you cut your hand off, uh, you know, you can't sue because they sped up the line, which would have produced the predictable result you cut your hand off. If you work in a, in a refinery and they're letting uh, loose benzene fill the air and you get cancer, you get leukemia, uh, which is you know, known to be caused by benzene, you can't sue anymore because, hey, you know, coronavirus. 
right? This, this, is, this is what Mitch McConnell is all about. And this is why he brought the, the Senate back. You know what they're doing now? They're confirming right-wing judges. That's all, literally all they're doing. Confirming right-wing judges and Trump's new in, uh, intelligence guy who follows a bunch of QAnon people on Twitter. That's it. Yesterday there was, uh, or Saturday, there was a huge crowd in Boston. Well, huge, you know, a couple hundred people. And just look at, this is the Boston Globe. Matt Stout from the Boston Globe documented this. Bob Brigham wrote it up for Raw Story. Uh, these people were saying, this is communism, and we don't want your shutdown anymore. These are, the, these are the, the protesters, right? Where are they getting this? They're getting it from Rush Limbaugh and Fox News. Anyhow, this, it's not a pandemic. The reason why they're doing this is to turn the United States into the United Socialist States of America. That's what one of the protesters said. Well, that's what Charles Koch has been saying for years. That's what the right-wing billionaires are all saying. Yeah, we don't want no socialism. Let the poor people die. Screw them. Another one's, uh, another, uh, the crowd chanted, it's a hoax, it's a hoax, it's a hoax. And then later the crowd chanted, make America great again, make America great again. And cars were driving by with Trump signs. I mean, this is, this is what we're confronting right now. And what's their plan? What is the Republican plan? Let people die. I've been saying this for, four, for at least three or four weeks, that the Trump plan is herd immunity. The Trump plan, actually, I think it even goes beyond that. The Trump plan is to say, eh, so what? The highest risk factor for death with coronavirus is being over 60. So pff, let them die. Their lives aren't that worth that much anymore. They're at the end of their lives. They're on Social Security after all. We'll cut, we'll cut Social Security obligations. They're on Medicaid, and, and it's costing us a fortune. Let them die. We can cut the taxes on the billionaires again. That's their plan. Meanwhile, in Colorado, one of the guys who showed up for these protests, uh, Bradley Bunn, 53, he was promoting the protests, actually, on uh, social media, saying, bring assault rifles to this uh, May 1st rally in Colorado. So the, the cops checked him out, and they found pipe bombs in his house. Brilliant. And meanwhile, the, uh, the Republican, Martha McSally and a couple of other Republicans, uh, Representative Paul Gosar and Representative Debbie Lasko, were photographed, the three of them, all their faces crammed together, smiling for a selfie in front of Air Force One just about an hour ago. They're flying on Air Force One with Trump to Arizona for a rally or what's going to be, you know, it'll, it'll be called something else, but I'm telling you, it's a rally. And, you know, people are all outraged on social media. Why aren't you wearing masks? Well, I'll tell you why they're not wearing masks. They're not wearing masks because they were tested. They're testing everybody who gets near the president. Anybody who gets on Air Force One has to get tested. They've got these rapid 15-minute tests at the White House. You don't have them anywhere else. They don't have them for Congress. And by the way, what do you want to bet that all the Republican senators got this test and it was paid for by anonymous billionaires and that they're not telling their Democratic colleagues? I'd bet 50 bucks on that if I was a betting man. I mean, I, you know, I'm guessing a week or two weeks from now, particularly as Democrats start getting sick, if that's what happens, or people on their staff, you're going to hear stories about how the Republicans all had tests. Anyhow, Trump is continuing his cover-up on all this stuff. Not only has he blocked Fauci and Burks from testifying before the House, not only has he blocked Mike Pence from testifying before the House, but today he blocked Seema Vimir, or Verma, the uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services Director, and uh, HHS Secretary Alex Azar. 
Why? Well, he says the Democrats are Trump haters. So nobody can testify before the House. This was the same approach he took with the uh, impeachment, with the whole Russia, is he colluding with Russia thing. And it actually worked for him. I fully expect this one to work, too. This is incredible. Is this how democracy dies? Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Coming up on the science revolution, it's amazing. Cleaner air during the pandemic is proving the benefits of a decarbonized economy. Dr. Jay Family Eddy is here on how the number of people harmed by floods will double worldwide by 2030. In Geeky Science, don't miss the seven things that happen when you stop eating meat or eat less meat during this pandemic. And our fact of the week is about plummeting wildlife and extinctions. Check out the science revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Just a, a couple of quick things before I pick up your calls. Marcos Molitsis wrote a great piece over on Daily Kos. It's titled, Why We Shouldn't Worry About Elizabeth Warren's Senate Seat. I tweeted it out to several people who said, well, what, you know, uh, the problem with Warren is that, uh, you know, you lose a Democratic seat in the Senate because Massachusetts has a, a Republican governor, Charlie Baker. Well, the fact of the matter is in 2004, when John Kerry was running for president, he had that seat in the Senate. I'm not sure it was that exact seat because there's two of them in Massachusetts. I'd have to go back and look. But in any case, he was the senator for Massachusetts and Massachusetts had a Republican governor. I believe it was Mitt Romney at the time. And so the Massachusetts legislature, which is overwhelmingly controlled by Democrats. I mean, right now, the Senate in Massachusetts is 34 Democrats to four Republicans and the House is 126 Democrats to 31 Republicans. So what they did in 2004 is they changed the law. They said, regardless of the party of the governor, the governor has to pick somebody who is of the same party as the person leaving. So if you're going to replace John Kerry, Mitt Romney, if you're going to replace John Kerry, Governor Romney, you have to pick another Democrat. They actually changed the law in Massachusetts in 2004. Everybody was like, oh, that's cool. And then they changed it back in 2009 after Ted Kennedy died when Deval Patrick, who was a Democrat, was the governor. They said, well, we don't need this law anymore. I'm not sure if they changed it back or they let it expire. But in any case, now it's just up to the governor. But in 2004, it was up to the governor, but he had to pick a Democrat. Well, they could easily change that law again. They overwhelmingly control the Boston House and Senate. And if they did, frankly, I think Charlie Baker would be happy about that. He's a Republican who you know, has really taken on his own party. I mean, he's spoken out about Trump, against Trump's travel ban. He's spoken out against Trump's immigration policy. He refused to endorse Trump in 2016. He's refusing to endorse him now. He has been smuggling personal protective equipment into the state. He joined the region's multi-state coronavirus planning compact, the only Republican to do so. So this is not this is not rocket science. You know, we don't have to lose a Democratic Senate seat if Elizabeth Warren becomes the VP choice and in November wins the election and has to resign from her Senate seat. We don't have to lose it as a Democratic seat. No problem. 
Oh, and if you don't, if you don't think that this is all, you know, it's all about the money. Frontier Airlines is now saying, hey, you want that middle seat next to you empty? Pay extra. They're calling them more room seats. I'm surprised they're not calling them freedom seats. After all, everything you put the word freedom on, you can charge more money for. It's amazing. Anyhow, Trace in West Palm Beach, Florida. Hey, Trace, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Thanks for uh, constantly being ahead of the curve on everyone else in, uh, in this throughout this entire thing. I just wanted to ask, well, two, two questions. One, I don't know if you saw, but Trump tweeted something about yesterday going after the Lincoln Project ad and then all this stuff. And he, yeah, he was he, melting he, he, down. The Lincoln Project, for people who don't know what you're talking about, Trace, is headed up in part and was co-founded by Kellyanne Conway's husband, George. And they just ran an ad that basically said Trump is a failure. He's failing at leadership. He's failing, you know, with tens of thousands of dead Americans. And Trump went on a rage tweet binge about it last night and called him Moonface, uh, you know, which is typically a slur against people of Asian ancestry. And sure enough, George Conway is half Filipino. Anyhow, back to you, Trace. So he tweeted this thing out and he touted the fact that he lowered taxes to an all time low. But anyone with a brain is going to realize we were already in the middle of a great economy. Now we're now the economy's in shambles. There's nothing left to stimulate it. I mean, it's not rocket science that that decision is proving to be a bad decision very quickly. And he's so short-sighted that he continues to tout that. So that was my first. I mean, is it is it beyond? Is no. It, here's here I mean, here's what you're missing, Trace. Here's what you're missing. In the for the first, you know, from uh, from November when Trump first or the, the Trump administration first learned about the, this virus, you know, circulating in China from November through December and January and February and the first week or so of March, the official position, the Trump position of the Trump administration was don't worry, be happy, keep the economy going. Uh, we don't care what's going to happen. Then when people started dying in droves and the doctors started showing up on TV with tears in their eyes and people were being stored in in refrigerated trucks outside hospitals, then Trump had to act. And so he listened to his doctors. He listened to Burks and Fauci, who said, we've got to save lives or at the very least, we've got to save the hospitals. We've got to flatten the curve so that our emergency rooms and our ICUs are not overwhelmed. And so, you know, let the deaths trickle in rather than come in as a flood. And so Trump said, okay, and he declared a national emergency and, and, and recommended social distancing and all this kind of stuff. Well, the social distancing actually has a big effect. And even in states that didn't put it into place, people are not showing up. They're not going shopping. They're being very careful. And so the curve started to flatten nationwide. And so now he's saying, okay, step two, how much is a human life worth? Well, it's certainly not worth millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions, which is when you divide the number of dead people by the economic damage, what we're looking at. So we're going to go back to saying, hey, it's no problem if a couple hundred thousand people die. In fact, if a million people die, that's no problem because most of them are going to be old or black or poor if they're white. And, and, you know, and those are people that you know, Republicans just don't give a damn about, frankly. So, you know, that's that's the, the, the thing that I think you're missing there, Trace. Look at look at I mean, right. this is this is the arc of this whole thing. Right. On point. But if states start to open one by one and you have some states remaining at a uh, placing an emphasis on social distancing, isn't that sort of like having a smoking section in an airplane? Yeah, or a peeing section in a swimming pool. Yeah, which is the metaphor I was using last week. You're absolutely right. And this is, you know, this is a problem. It's not such a big problem right now because people aren't traveling interstate. 
you know, the airlines are shut down. But it will become a big problem when the economy starts coming back. Here in Oregon, we had, we've had no deaths in the last two days. In Multnomah County, which is Portland, which is, you know, the majority of the population of Oregon, I think, or at least the largest population center, we have had not only no deaths, but, you know, I think yesterday we had something like, you know, 14 or 11 new cases. The day before that was 14. I mean, we're way down from 30s and 40s a day, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. It's working here just like it's working in Hong Kong. Hong Kong hasn't had a death in several days. They've crushed the curve. New Zealand thinks that they can become virus-free within the next few weeks. Australia is moving in that direction. Taiwan, same deal. So basically, the blue states are adopting the Asian model, the the New Zealand, Australia, Hong Kong, Taiwan model. And the red states are adopting the Swedish model, which is, you know, have three or four times as many people die as everybody else, but they're going to be mostly old people and poor people. And, you know, they're not worth damaging our economy over. And frankly, one of those two models is probably going to win out at the end of the day. And I'm guessing it's going to be the Trump Sweden model when all is said and done. But we'll see. We'll see. Trace, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Uh, Stimulating conversation, shall we say. Virginia, New Hope, Alabama. Hey, Virginia, what's up? Hey, lady. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question, something that I heard Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of days ago. It was um, a message that Putin supposedly sent out to the other world leaders that America had lost its uh, standing on the world stage as being a leader. And uh, Yeah, Putin said that uh, several I, months ago. China said that last week. <clears throat> uh, didn't uh, China tell, uh, send a message to troops who needed to worry about his sick soldiers? I don't know. Well, what was your that. point, Virginia? Well, uh, that uh, this has it, what's going on now has exposed all our weaknesses. Uh, they oh, say yeah. the long food lines, uh, the amount of people that are are uh, going week to week to paycheck, um, and uh, the divide that we have here in America, and uh, with yes. the president claiming complete power then that, to me, looks like a dictatorship, totalitarian, or fascist-type government. I, I think you're right. I think we are in the twilight days of American democracy. And it's either going to be completely crushed by Donald Trump and his billionaire buddies. It's going to be completely crushed, and he wins the election, and that's the end of American democracy. And we slide into full-blown fascism at this time next year. Either that's going to happen, or... The anti-American movement, the Republican Party's anti, you know, hate America movement is going to be crushed at the ballot box in November. And we're going to get a new FDR kind of president or or hopefully, God willing. And we will have a new renewal in America like we did 80 years ago when this happened in the 1930s and 40s. So and 80 years before that, when it happened in the 1860s, 1870s. So we'll see. But Virginia, you raise a very, very good point, and thank you very much for for doing so, uh, and for watching us on Facebook Live. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And if you don't think this is turning into an all-out culture war, check this out. A Michigan man walks up to a person in a store and says, I'll use this mask, wipes his nose on the worker's uniform. Doug in Springfield, Illinois, he says here you're a Trump and supporter. How are you? I'm I am own. a Trump supporter. Too. And I am offended by 
you and your callers that think everybody that's a Trump supporter is a Nazi right wing freak. Okay, and just and the the national news. That's all we're made out to be is a bunch of brain dead fools that are just fell off the apple cart. I'm from Illinois, okay, and this is the capital of corruption. How do you, Doug, how can you suggest that we shouldn't think of Trump supporters as Nazis when Trump openly praises Trump supporters who are carrying Nazi swastikas? I would challenge, I have never, ever seen anything like that. I was at his rally. We saw Nazi swastikas in Charlottesville. We saw them in Lansing, Michigan last week. We saw them in Detroit. We're seeing them all over the country. I think that is in response to being beat down for three years ever since the president got elected. I mean, he's had the FBI stacked against him from the Obama administration. They tried to derail him every step of the way. So let me get this straight, Doug. You're saying that when people are beat down, their response, their appropriate response is to become Nazis and and wear the Nazi swastika. I have not seen black people doing that, and they've been beat down in this country for hundreds of years. What am I missing? I'm telling you, the Nazi comparison is just out the window. I mean, I am not a freaking Nazi, pal. Okay, I am. A, I mean, I just don't get it. I, I first off, I then why do you why call. do you want to hang out in a club that's filled with Nazis? Oh, please! I don't understand do you think this. The Thirty-six million, the sixty million people that elected the president were all Nazis. I told you. No, I'm not suggesting that. I'm talking about Trump are, supporters, not Trump voters. Oh, there's not much of explicitly. A and you're a Trump supporter. You're you are supporting no, people. Supporter you know, people in your club are Nazis, and I'm not hearing you call them out. I'm not hearing you say get rid of them. I'm not hearing you no, say no, you know no, those no, protesters no, with the swastikas no, should be put in jail. I'm not hearing any of that, Doug. I I'm telling you right now, they are. They're reprehensible. They're lowlifes. They're scum. Uh, David Duke. Then why don't you do something yards. about that in your party? Well, I'm from a blue state myself, and my point. What does that have to do with anything? Well, I, why don't you get I, rid of the Nazis in your own party? And why does your president keep calling them very fine people? He did that one time that I'm aware of. No, he did that, that was, three days ago. He did it with Charlottesville two years ago. He's constant. He's repeatedly called them very fine people. Well, in I, fact, I, he I, said know, that Governor Whitmer should be negotiating with people with swastikas on their arms. And, he literally said that, Doug. He didn't just say it. He also tweeted it. How can you support a guy who supports Nazis? I don't get it. I am not a Nazi supporter. Give me a frickin' break. I'm not a Nazi supporter. Then then how? I mean, what what, what am I supposed to do about it? I am not a Nazi supporter. I'm not a Nazi sympathizer. I'm not anything. What you do about it? The Democrats. What you do, Doug, is what you do, Doug, is what so many other people in the Republican Party have done, like Steve Schmidt, who ran John McCain's campaign, for example, and a number of Republican elected officials. Jeff Flake, you know, former Republican senator from Arizona, wrote an op-ed about this a couple of weeks ago. What you do is you leave the party. And you say, I'm not coming back till the Nazis are gone. And that will be in four more years, unfortunately, for you. Because he's going Join to Justin Amash and become an independent or a libertarian. I mean, there's space for principled conservatives. I, I no, and I am one of those. 
Believe me, I am one of them. And then I why are the you most su- corrupt Why are you supporting world. a guy who supports Nazis? What is he giving you that you're missing? Okay. That you would be missing from somebody like Justin Amash? You, you have to remember, back in the '16. I'm not talking yeah. about Trump voters, Doug. There were a lot of well-intentioned Trump voters. I know we some given. of them. I'm talking about Trump choice. supporters like you. Well, right, and I, but I'm not a Nazi. Well, then again, my question, what is Trump giving you that would cause you to stay in a party and support a man who openly supports Nazis? First, What's I in disagree it for you? with the premise. I disagree with is the premise. Is it that he's locking up brown people and their him, children? I've heard him say. Is it that he's he cutting welfare benefits to black people? I mean, what is it that people, why, why do people follow Trump? I don't get it. I'll tell you why. Because he speaks his mind. He's not going through a filter. Right, he supports Nazis. Oh, my God. See, this this type of talk, where you're coming from with your... Well, he speaks his mind. What specifically does he say that you like? He puts America first, period. Yes, we're first in maternal deaths. We're first in COVID infections. We're first in COVID... You know, what is that? What the hell does America first mean? He's still making his Trump merchandise in China, Doug. His daughter is still making her stuff in China. Well, I will say this. The whole conversation was about Nazis. And his I maggot hats are made in all, China. All of the people that I know from this blue state that voted for the president are not Nazis. And I'm offended okay. by all that. Right. Doug, I, well, I get it. And, you, and you're on the record. Thank you very much. And thanks for a civil conversation, Doug. I genuinely appreciate it. We will, we will be back tomorrow. Another interesting day flies by. Keep your eyes open. I'm very concerned that we are looking at the last days of small d democracy in the United States if enough of us don't wake up. And if, you know, good people like Doug, who I, be, you know, I believe deep down inside, he thinks he's a good person and he's trying to do the right thing, don't start recognizing the, the cancer in their party and, and do something about it. Anyhow, we'll see you tomorrow. Uh, share a progressive media with your friends. Tag your it. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.